one of the announcements and enter us into the scriptures. Enter us is probably a real word, right? Dad joke. Exodus chapter 2. So as we begin this morning, I want you guys to remember that last week we talked about how the book of Exodus, if you really want to sum it up, it is the birth story of the nation of Israel. It's a birth story. Who doesn't love a good birth story? Uh, you know, it, I, I told you last time, but I'll tell you again, that when my children have a birthday, we discuss basically the circumstances that their mother and I went through on the day of their birth. Not to make them feel guilty, but to remember, like, your life started very purposefully and God took care of you. Now, if you know anything about birth, it's the most dangerous time of an infant's life is actually when the child is getting ready to enter into and through the birth canal. And for the nation of Israel, this is a dangerous time. This is a time where they have been a family and they've multiplied into this large nation. And I said to you last time that it was about 3 million people. That's based on estimates. The male population, when they exit um, Egypt, is around 600,000, just the adult males. And so you can imagine when they have children and wives and servants and, and all those that go with them. And so this is a very large population that God's getting ready to deliver. But before a nation can be delivered... Their deliverer has to be delivered. And so in Exodus chapter 2, we begin with verse 1, where it says, A man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. And if you remember anything about the blessings and the future of Israel, the the Levitical tribe is actually the tribe through whom the priesthood would come. And the Levites are servants in the house of God. And so these two that are from this future tribe that will serve God are getting ready to have a child. And before they have a child, they have to get married, right? At least that's the ideal condition. And so the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw he was a beautiful child, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, She took an ark of bulrushes for him. She built an ark. She daubed it with asphalt and pitch. She waterproofed it. And she put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And so I want to start today with this question. Who wrote the book of Exodus? Does anybody know? That's right. It was Moses. And how do we know that? Because it doesn't start the book by saying, Exodus, a book written by Moses, because it starts before he's born. But the person that actually tells us that Moses wrote Exodus is actually Jesus. Jesus mentions to the scribes and Pharisees, he quotes the book of Moses, and then he says, don't you remember in the book of Moses when God spoke to Moses through a burning bush? And so that's how we know, and it's also in Luke, that Moses actually wrote Exodus. So here we have Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed. And if you look ahead at Exodus chapter 6, verse 16 through 20, we find out their names. But right now, they shall remain nameless. So the woman conceived and bore a son. But what I want to point out is that in the context of last chapter that we read, what are the times like in the nation of Egypt? 
what are things like for the nation of Israel? Uh, Israel is actually not a nation, but they're actually slaves to a nation. They're oppressed, they're afflicted, and they have no control over their government. They're actually forced to labor by their government. The Pharaoh has set taskmasters that are beating them as slaves and forcing them to do their bidding. So you could imagine the temptation in this time to go, you know what, there's no hope. Um, Why do we even need to get married? Why don't we just keep it simple and we'll just basically cohabitate and it'll just be easier? Because to get married in that kind of climate, economically and physically, it's just, it's going to make more sense to just remain single. But even in this time period, it seems that this woman and this man decide that it's worthwhile to give their lives to each other sacrificially in marriage, knowing that at any point they could lose one another because of the oppression, the affliction, because of the forced labor. So verse 1, two people choose to get married in a time where it makes no sense to get married. Uh, They could have chosen to eat, drink, and be merry and to live it up rather than uh, give themselves to one another. So on top of this, they have already had two children, it says, and now they're going to have another one. Uh Uh-oh, a son. We need to hide him, because remember chapter 1, the Pharaoh and the king said, if there are any sons born among the Israelites, the Hebrew people, then throw them into the river to kill them so that we can keep them under our thumb. We don't want them to rise up against us. And so when the government commands you to get rid of sons, (laughs) they chose to give him to the Lord. Now, I find this interesting because they lived in a time where the government forced them to get rid of their children. We live in a time where we have freedom to have as many children as we want, and without being forced, we give them up. We essentially throw them into the river, some physically, right? And so that's the part of the brokenness of our society. We worship pleasure rather than worshiping God, and so we give ourselves over and we take life instead of protecting it. But here's their three options. They can obey the world and throw him into the river. That is an option. It's not a good option. It's a sinful option, but it's an option. And you might say, well, I would never do that. I protect my children. I, I would never throw them into physical danger. But I would submit to you that sometimes we don't have a literal river but maybe we have uh, spiritual rivers that we're casting our kids into all the time and we don't even realize it. And in 1 Peter in chapter 1, we see this, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1. <clears throat> Peter writes very boldly about Jesus, having been a witness of his death, and he says, Therefore, since Jesus Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but instead living for the will of God. He says, for we have already spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, or the the ungodly, the pagan, the godless. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, 
In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, and they even speak evil of you because you won't. So maybe we don't cast our children into the river of water to kill them, but I think sometimes unknowingly we cast our children into the flood of dissipation, the flood of waste because of what we introduce to them or because what we allow into our homes or, or by our own example of what we're still practicing. He says that we should no longer live the rest of our time in the flesh for we've spent enough time in our past lifetime. And I would question this morning, are you still in the past? Are you still living in the things of the past? Or have you forsaken them? Because by continuing in them, you're not only leading yourself into a unrighteous spot, but you're also leading your family into a flood of dissipation that the world is already going to mock them for not being in, but we can lead them by example out of the flood. So all that to say, choice one is to obey the world and throw our children into the river. And it's, by the way, easier to do that than it is to... uh, keep them from harm. Choice number two, uh, they have to hide him and protect him in their own strength. Uh, They did this, by the way. Verse three says that they they hid him for three months until they could no longer hide him anymore. And so eventually you can't do that any longer. Eventually the child gets big enough. Eventually their cries get louder. Eventually uh, they have to be released into the world, right? And so the question is, uh, are we trying to hide our children from the world or are we actively preparing them for the world? Um, And here it says that uh, when they could no longer hide Moses from the world, they prepared a way that he would be lifted above the flood of dissipation. They prepared a way that they, they could enter into the world, but in a way that they would have a chance to survive. And so I love this because God's not called us, by the way, <clears throat> to protect our children uh, from the world, but instead to prepare them to be protected by him through the world. And I think at a very young age, it is our job to make sure we keep them from the world. And as they get older, our job is now to prepare them so that they will be protected by the Lord from the world. And I know this because as I read, as I was reading this week in the Psalms, Psalm chapter 127 says this. Many of you are familiar with these verses. Psalm 127. I keep going past it, like all the way past and all the way back. Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, those who watch over it stay awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. And then I think it's no coincidence that after that, he's talking about building a house. He's talking about guarding a city. He's, he's talking about our homes. But then he goes on to say, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward from him. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. And so 
we are called as Christian parents not only to prepare our children, but also to build them up in the faith and then to guard them. And at the same time, all of this is not so that we would be the ones that always does that in their lives, but prepares them to do it themselves. That he would be the one building the house brick by brick. And so back here in, uh, back here in Exodus, we consider the third option. So option one, what was it? Sorry. Obey the world. Option two, protect our kids. Uh, option three, prepare our kids. And I would even say, now that I've considered this longer, they're not really options. I think they're stages in being a parent. Uh, being a parent is this, you know, protecting your kids, and it's guarding your kids, and it's teaching them the ways of the Lord actively and inactively, but then also preparing a safe way of passage for them to enter into the world prepared to fight the battles they're going to experience. It's not a matter of if, but when. And so what are they going to do when they're out there on their own? So what we see in the example of Moses' parents is when they realize they can no longer hide their children from the Lord, or from the world, not the Lord, um, they prepare a safe way for them to enter in through this ark. They, and then as they release the ark into a river, by the way, um, I don't know how many of you would feel comfortable releasing your children into a river. I don't think it's a safe place for infants, do you? Three months old, right? I, I think that there's probably some PSAs about that. You know, don't leave your children by water. Um, but here in faith, as they've been preparing and trusting the Lord with their children, they're going to be ready to let them go. Not to just let them go haphazardly, but let them go in a godly way. By, and, and God's going to do the saving. He's going to do the protecting. He's going to do the delivering by his divine providence. Uh, and, and all he, he's going to do is save, protect, and deliver Moses into the circumstances that are not easy circumstances that he will use to prepare him for his future purpose. That's verse 4 through 10 of this chapter. Preparing him for his future. So the description, by the way, of this ark, I don't know, many of you might have caught this, but he's supposed to make it out of material and then cover it in tar and pitch. Sound familiar? Sound a little bit like Noah's arky? Arky? Does it sound like what God called Moses to, or Noah to build? He gave him instructions. He said, I want you guys to, there's going to be a judgment coming, but I want you to prepare this ark, and then I want you to get in the ark. Two steps, although there were many in between. And once they got in, guess what? The judgment that the world received was actually the thing that God used to lift them up above the judgment as long as they were in the ark. And so what do both of these arks rest on? They rest on the flood of water that was meant for the judgment of the world. And so they're raised up. So these are the same options that we have as parents, which I've gone into, and as friends to those who are lost. Many times we feel hopeless when it comes to those who don't know the Lord, and yet we cannot save them, right? We can't save our kids. First thing we need to admit, we cannot save our children, but we can introduce to them to the one that can save them. But then as friends to those who are lost, we can't save those friends. And if you think you can, you're widely mistaken. But notice what his parents did. They chose to hide him while they could. The ways that we can hide our children is by doing all the things we do physically, but also dousing them in prayer. 
praying over them as we lay them down at night, praying over them as they, they leave our homes in someone else's car, praying for them as they go off to camp, probably going to break something, you know, praying for them as they go into things that we don't know what's going on giving them not to the people or the circumstances, but always giving them to the Lord as they go into those things. Then they placed him in a river. (laughs) Pray for your kids and then realize that the rest of their life, they're going to be placed into a river that's going to try and erode their faith. Pray for them and then let go of them. Pray for them and then let go of them. And that's kind of what I'm learning is that's, that's parenting. You pray for your kids, you do all you can, and then you give them to the Lord. And as you do that, um, they will survive by his grace. Now, one observation I made, a river is a safe place for an infant to be alone as long as he's been placed in the ark. A river is a safe place for your infant to be alone as long, your baby, my baby, you know, like, is a safe place to leave them if they've been placed in the ark. And the reality is our ark is not something made out of bulrushes and covered in tar and pitch. Our ark is Jesus Christ. Placing our children in Jesus is always the perfect, most beneficial thing that they can experience. He might take them places that in your mind are totally unsafe, but you can trust him in that because he was taken by his father into unsafe places for the glory of God. And guess what? God's will be done. God got the glory. And so our ark has been prepared for us, Jesus Christ. And we even see that lived out in the life of Jesus Christ. He was born, he was brought up, and then he was let go of. And as he was let go of and he was baptized and this Holy Spirit filled him and he went into the wilderness and he was tempted and then he, he performed miracles and then people hated him and then he was brought into this circumstance, you might remember it in Mark chapter 4, where he said to his disciples, who were somebody's baby, by the way, the disciples of Jesus were someone's baby. He said to those disciples, let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And guess what they did? They got in the boat not knowing that a deluge storm was getting ready to come. And when the storm came, he was sleeping. And yet, when they woke him up, panicked, yeah, we're going to die out here. He said, are you still having a hard time trusting me? And then he speaks to the, to the ocean or to the Sea of Galilee that is in much tumult. And he says, peace be still. And guess what happens? He protects them and immediately they come to the other side. And that happened multiple times. The other time he came to them in the middle of the storm and he was walking on the water. (laughs) You see, he was walking on the water because he is the ark. He's the ark that that water pushes up. He floats. He's not like me. I sink to the bottom. Jesus walks on the water because he is the ark. The ark of Noah was a type of Jesus Christ. The ark that uh, Jochebed built was was a type of Jesus Christ. And so he brings us above the flood of judgment that we deserve, right? And so that's three verses. You guys ready for this? <laughs> you can wake back up now. Verse four, he continues on. His sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. So while he's being placed and his mom's letting him go, his sister can't help but watch 
his older sister. Having a son and an older daughter, I could see this very easily happening. She has to micromanage his life. Otherwise, what is she going to do with her time? She might do her own chores, and she might boss the dog around instead of him. But that's what Lucy does. And this older sister is, at the same time, her brother's keeper. And she takes that very seriously. Why is mom putting my my brother in a river? Why, Why is mom letting him go and walking away? She probably had to walk away in order to not continue holding on. And yet, the sister is watching. And so, as she's watching... She's wondering what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby wept. Imagine that. A baby all alone in an ark cried. So she had compassion on him. She was moved by the baby's tears, and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And so then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, having been close and watchful over her brother, as soon as she saw the opportunity, she said to Pharaoh's daughter with boldness, Do you want me to go and call a nurse for you? Obviously you can't nurse this baby. Do you want me to go get somebody? And of course, who's she going to go get? She's going to go get mom. Mom! Moses needs fed. And, and so she does this in a very practical way. And she says that, that she may nurse the child for you. And Pharaoh's daughter, not just any person, the daughter of Pharaoh. So the Pharaoh has ordered the death of Hebrew babies, right? The daughter of Pharaoh is saving Hebrew babies. I love this. This is only, only God can do this. And so... Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother, and who better to take care of him? Verse 9, then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. She gives her child to the Lord. Notice this principle. This is a principle of scripture. Give your children to the Lord and he will give them back to you to be a steward of. Those children are not yours. They're his. It says they're a heritage from the Lord in Psalm 127. They're a reward from him for faith. And so if if we give our children to the Lord and then he gives them back, all of a sudden we're not taking care of them like they're our baby, although we are. We're taking care of them like they're his. And that's really what it needs to look like. Because if we treat them like we're, they're his, then guess what? We're going to teach them things that he wants them to learn instead of the junk that we think is important. We're going to have proper perspective. They're going to be bathed in the word of God. They're going to recognize their parents as failures and as sinners. And you're going to be honest about it because it's what the Lord would have you teach them. And then they'll have proper perspective. And so she gives her child to the Lord, not to the Pharaoh. She gives her child to the Lord, not to the river. And then the Lord, by his sovereign grace, says, here's your child back. Feed him, and guess what? I'm going to pay you to do it. (laughs) She gets paid to raise her own child. By the way, as parents, there is a reward in heaven for you for raising your children for Jesus. So when they wake you up in the middle of the night, You're getting paid, don't worry. 
and it's not going to be in sleep. <laughs> you know, when they're stressing you out as a teenager and you have no grace left, ask the Lord for grace. Treat them the way that he would, like a sinner in need of grace. And guess what? It, it will cost you, but you will get paid back in dividends in heaven. No matter what comes your way, there is a reward for swimming upstream in the culture and teaching your kids to follow Jesus righteously and in truth. Call them out on their junk. Stop trying to be your children's friends. You are there to be a parent, to represent God to them. And as you do that, they may not like you, but they will learn to love you. And later in Jesus, they'll look back and go, I was such a turd. Thank you for loving me anyway. That's, that's, that's what's going on here. And so, verse 9. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. How painful would that be for a mom? going to become the Pharaoh's uh, prince, basically, to become the son of some other woman. And yet all along, she knows who he really is. And so she called his name Moses. I want you to notice, she didn't get to name her own child. Someone else did. And yet even the name of this young lady will be a picture, not only of what she did. Moses means out of the water. She names him Moses because she, she got him literally out of the water. And yet it's a prophetic uttering that one day he will actually, this nation he's going to lead will be birthed out of water. They'll walk through on dry land between two big mountains of water called the Red Sea. And so she gets to name him. She says, because I drew him out of the water. His mom let go of him, trusting the Lord, and now gets to raise him. And, uh, and she's been preparing him. And I believe verse 11 points out Verse 11 says, It came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, so fast forward in his life, that he went out to his brethren and he looked at their burdens. He somehow knew that he was Hebrew. I don't know if it was the tone of his flesh or if it was that his mom was all the time singing Jesus songs, you know, or little Hebrew songs, but he knew who he was. He knew whose he was. And I believe it was because the whole time she was singing songs of faith over him. She was praying for him. And so when he comes of age, he knows whose he is, and he's prepared to enter into the world. Moses was grown, though, and it, he went out to his brethren, and he looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So Moses sees injustice, and he gets angry. By the way, true injustice is something that we should be angry about. Did you know that anger is not sin? Actually, Ephesians says, be angry. The Bible actually says, be angry. I'm thankful for that. I get angry sometimes. Maybe a lot. Sometimes for righteous reasons. Sometimes because my kingdom got stepped on. But in here, what we see is that Moses gets angry and that is not his sin. What he does with the energy propelled by his, angry, his anger is what his sin is. Verse 12. So he looked this way 
And he looked that way. And when he saw no one, he said, I'm by myself. He took matters into his own hands. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. By the way, if you're going to try and hide your sin, the best that we can do is hide it under something that can blow away. Something that can be moved and our sin be exposed. I don't know what you try to cover your sin with. I know what I've tried to cover my sin with. I know what Adam and Eve covered their sin with. Uh, Fig leaves. By the way, what moves fig leaves? Wind. What moves sand? Wind. What will expose your sin? A wind. A wind of the Holy Spirit. And so here we see him covering his sin. And yet it will be exposed because everything will one day come into the light. And so he's taken things into his own hands. He's killed someone to make an injustice right. He does injustice, right? He, he, he performs injustice, and we see this all the time. In order to do the right thing, we do it the wrong way. We, we don't trust the system, and so we find a way to supersede the system. But the problem is, is that we, we trade injustice for more injustice, and yet God, our God, is the God of justice. He will set things right the right way. So notice that Moses, before he set things right, he looked everywhere but up. He was trying to make sure that people didn't see him. But there is a God who sees all, who is with us, and he is there all the time, whether anybody else is or not. He's there with you when you're alone. And Moses has been very educated, by the way. And Corinthians says that knowledge puffed is, it puffs you up. And what's interesting is that Moses went to the best university in the world at the time. He was an Egyptian prince. He was educated in the best place you could be educated, a, a, a place of higher learning, if you will. And yet he was ignorant concerning the ways of faith. And notice also Moses, by doing this, is really just showing that he's impatient. He wants to fix the problem right away. And yet in Proverbs, as I was reading this morning in my daily reading, imagine this, the Lord met me right where I was, and he showed me Proverbs chapter 16 in verse 32, where it says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. He who controls his anger, and James would even say that our anger in our tongue will set a fire like a forest fire quickly. And yet what it says there, he who rules over his anger, he who is slow to anger is better than anyone who is mighty. And so we see that Moses, though he will be God's deliverer, is a sinner. <laughs> That's encouraging to me. And, and what's interesting is Moses is trusting in his own strength, his own wit. Many believe he was actually trained in some sort of martial arts, some sort of fighting uh, by his, uh, his nation. He was trained in the strength of the flesh for salvation. But what's interesting is that the strength of the flesh, not only can it not save, but those who practice the deeds of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not be a part of the kingdom of God. 
Galatians chapter 5 says, now the works of the flesh are evident. And some of these you'll be like, well, yeah, obviously. And he lists out adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, and then look at this, murder. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the time past, those who continue in the practice of such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And yet Matthew chapter 5 says, Blessed are you, (laughs) blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The kingdoms of the world are not inherited the way that the world would inherit them. And so, verse 13, Because of that, when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? He's going out daily and he's going to judge the people. By the way, that's what he will do when they come into the land. He will be a judge over them. But he's going to do it by the strength of God instead of the strength of the flesh. So he goes out to judge them. He says, why are you striking your companion? He tries to be the arbiter between two Hebrews who are fighting one another. And then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? By the way, God had made them, made him a prince. God would make him a judge over them. He says, do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh-oh. <laughs> Apparently the sand wasn't enough to cover up my sin. So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. I, I thought that I had hidden it, and yet now it's come to the light. So when Pharaoh heard of this, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. And so Moses' sin is not hidden, and those he's trying to help, he despises. He's despised by those he's trying to help. He's, He's not become this judge that they respect. He's become a man that they despise because of his sin. Everyone knows, verse 14, and, and judgment will come from above. Now, now, obviously, God judges sin, but in this case, Pharaoh is, is furious with the murder of one of his, his Egyptian soldiers or his Egyptian taskmasters by his, used to be second in command, uh, the people of God. And Moses is going to be the prince. And yet Moses, because of his sin, flees to the desert and he's exiled. And I want to point out this sin makes the heir to the throne, even the highest of leaders, a homeless fugitive on the run at best. Even in Egypt, the prince of Egypt, because of his sin, is all of a sudden a man without a home, a man without a family. And sin will do that. It will separate you from God. That's the major consequence, but it also will separate you from your family and the body of Christ even. And so we're to deal with our sin properly. Not run away, but confess it and own it. I want to point out something that I hadn't thought of till this morning. But Moses flees from Goshen all the way to a place called Midian. So he crosses the Sinai Peninsula, which, by the way, is one of the biggest deserts in the world. 
His sin sends him across a literal desert land and he flees to a place where he's a stranger, but still in a rocky, deserted place called Midian. And when he gets there, verse 16 says, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and they drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. So then the shepherds came and drove them away. These were other shepherds that were, I'm assuming, not female. And they were fighting over the water source. But Moses stood up and he helped them and he watered their flock. So now he's seeing an injustice in this strange land. And he uses, he's got this tendency just built into him to make things right. God made him that way. So everywhere he goes, he sees injustice and he has to get involved. And when he gets involved, guess what he does? He, he moves and he helps. And this time when he helps, it's a blessing rather than murder. He's loving his neighbor. So Moses stood up and he helped these seven shepherdesses and he watered their flock. And when these shepherdesses came to rule their father, they went back home. He said, how is it that you have come so soon? You're already done watering the flock. How did this happen? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. This sounds familiar to me, like the New Testament. This sounds like when people are healed and able to walk and people come and go, wait a minute, who healed you? Who has made you well? Who has taken away your leprosy? And then, of course, what do they do? They testify, uh, this man just came and he, he forgave my sins and, and he touched me and I was healed. So they're testifying of Moses, who is a type of Jesus Christ, and they're saying, uh, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he drew enough water for us, and he watered the flock. And so the dad, who has seven daughters, says, uh, where is he, and why didn't you bring him home with you? Uh, <laughs> I got seven daughters. You guys got to be married off. You got to get out of the house. When the world, he helped you water your sheep, he fought for you. Uh, he's got J-O-B. Like, marry the guy. What are you doing? And so, um, why is it that you have left the man there by the well? Call him that he may eat bread with us. Bring him to the table. I want to meet this young man. So then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses, to wife. And she bore him a son and called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And Gershom just means that, stranger. And so <clears throat> Moses' sin has sent him fleeing to the desert. And yet his sin has sent him into the circumstances that God's going to use to prepare him to make him what he's called to be, to prepare him for his purpose. God takes Moses to be alone with the Midianites? No. To be married? No. He takes him to the desert to get his backside of the desert degree. His B-S-O-D-D. -D. Uh, his backside of the desert degree. He sets him in a family. He teaches him things that the world doesn't know. He even makes him a shepherd. By the way, Egyptians, remember, they despise shepherds. So nobody was going to teach him how to be a shepherd in Egypt. And yet he's going to shepherd the people of Israel into the land of promise, right? So how's he going to learn how to deal with sheep unless he's a shepherd? Moses is humbled. 
He's no longer going to try to take matters into his own hand. But by the way, you cannot be made humble without experiencing humiliation. His sin was exposed first before he could ever become a shepherd. And, and this is the same for most of the people that God ever uses. He takes us to somewhere to learn things from him that the world cannot train us to do. He takes us to a place of loneliness. He takes us to a place of desert land. He takes us to places where we have to rely upon him. He did this to David. David was anointed king. And for years, he was chased by Saul, chased into the wilderness. And yet out there, he learned obedience through suffering, just like Jesus. Uh, Saul, who would become the apostle Paul, spent a a time in the Arabian desert just with God so that he could have the apostolic calling. And then eventually, Jesus, even the Son of God, had to be sent into a desert to learn obedience through suffering. He had to be tempted in every way that we are and yet without sin. And so the life of Moses could be summed up this way. The first 40 years, he was a somebody. He was the prince of Egypt. The second 40 years, he was a nothing in the eyes of the world. He was a shepherd. And the last 40 years as God's leader for Israel... Moses' life becomes proof that God can take something and make nothing out of it so that he can make something that's real and lasting. And then Moses becomes a blessing. But what's God preparing Moses for? Why all of this drama? Why all of this running? Why all of this sin and this deliverance and this new birth for Moses? Why this humiliation that leads to humbling? Well, because in verse 23... It happened in the process of time that, again, the king of Egypt died. That's what happened before, right? And their labor increased. And then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. And look at this. Because of the bondage in their lives, they did what? They cried out to God. By the way, if God's allowing some bondage or some oppression or some attack to happen in your life, consider the fact that Many times we don't call out to him unless we experience those things. It's a blessing in disguise. It may not feel like one, but God's going to do something new and he's needing to create birth. And so he's making you, as I said last week, uncomfortable. Or allowing your own sin to make you uncomfortable so that you'll cry out to him. But here it says, because of their bondage, they cried out and their cry, notice this, came up to God because of the bondage. So God listened. He heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant. What was his covenant to Abraham? I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And if you know anything about the preceding chapters, he's going to curse the Egyptians for cursing them many times over. And so it says that he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He looked upon the children of Israel, and he acknowledged them. Consider this, the God of the heavens and the earth is willing to acknowledge you and I. Why? We're dust on like a tiny planet in the solar system and in all of the universe. And yet he considers us and he looks upon us. He listens to us. He acknowledges us. He sends his son to die for us. So in the bigger narrative, God is preparing his delivery man for Israel's birth as a nation.
Every delivery needs somebody to help for the deliverance. And yet he's preparing Moses to be that man. In order for a nation to be reborn, and maybe you've heard a lot of people praying this, Lord, bring our our nation back to its foundation. In order for a nation to be reborn, the individuals who make up that nation, who lead it, must first be born again themselves. It's our job to lead the way. God is preparing us as deliverers. And the question is, are you willing to submit to his training in the desert places? Are you willing for him to change you and make you more like his son so that we can be a part of the mass exodus? And I'm not talking about out of America. I'm not talking about the exodus that's happened out of California. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the exodus when we leave this life. Are we shepherding people to the actual promised land that God's promised to those who love him and who are excited about his coming? The Israelites' deliverer is born. The Lord has prepared him. And now, in this book, we await for him to be sent. Much in the same way that our deliverer, Jesus Christ, came forth. He was born. He was prepared. And instead, he started out not as the author of death, like Moses, being a murderer, but he comes out already the author of life, led by the Holy Spirit of God. And he's called all of us to be those who would follow in his footsteps. Not to be the deliverer, but to be the hands and feet of the deliverer. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the story of Moses. We thank you for the application that comes from looking at his life. And I pray, Father, that you would help us not to let these things fall on deaf ears, but these principles, these applications, that you would drive them deep down into our hearts so that we could be your hands and feet, so that we could be for one person or 20 people or a thousand, uh, those who point to the deliverer, Jesus Christ. So Father, we love you. We thank you for you delivering us from the bondage of sin. We thank you for your promise and your covenant and your blood that is always good for us. And we pray, Father, that you would be glorified in how we live and how we are a part of other people's lives and that you would help us to be a billboard for your grace so that others would see that they, can, they too, like us, can turn, repent, believe, and follow Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.